invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be continuing this morning our series on humility. We're looking at the first 13 verses of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon His Word. God, we come this morning to a dark, dark passage. A dark event. God, we are so familiar with this story that it doesn't even affect us. We've heard this story so many times that the the tragedy of it, the insanity of it, does not even come close to gripping us. But we pray, God, that in these moments, You would grip us. Lord, this is Your Word. Word that is sharper than any 
double-edged sword. We pray that you would pierce us this morning. That you would cut us deep this morning by your word. That you would expose us. That you would lay us bare. That you would break us. Because, Lord, what is happening here isn't just Adam's sin. It's not just Eve's sin. This is our sin. We've done this. We have committed treason against our Creator. Help us to see it. Holy Spirit, convict us. Convict us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. Come and do this work. We pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. Last year, a film was released called A Hidden Life. Possibly the most moving film that I've ever seen in my life. It's based on a true story of an Austrian farmer named Franz Jagerstatter. And to describe Franz's marriage and family life as beautiful would be a complete understatement. Uh, his relationship with his wife and girls in the serene Austrian countryside was one of love, was one of peace, was one of bliss. But that bliss came quickly to an end. You see, Franz lived in the days of World War II. And when Franz received a letter calling him to serve uh, for Hitler's regime, to serve Nazi Germany, he refused. And he refused out of religious conviction. This led to his imprisonment. And eventually it led to his execution. He was beheaded. I've never watched a film that began with such happy joy. Only to end with such devastating, hopeless despair. And that's but a glimpse of what's happening here in our text this morning. Here we find the brightest bliss imaginable turned to the bleakest and most hopeless misery. It's important for us to remember as we come to Genesis 3 where we are. Where are we? God has just created the world. In the space of six days. And everything God has made, God has said, was very good. Now out of everything that God had made, nothing was so noble, so exalted, so special as man. Man was created in God's image. And as God's image, he was to reflect God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. God took man and He placed man in a garden. We saw that this garden was a temple. It was a temple in which man was to function as a priest. 
and in which man was to have perfect communion and fellowship with his God. And God entered into a special relationship with man. The Bible calls this a covenant. And this binding relationship placed certain obligations upon man. And through this relationship, God promised man eschatological life upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. What was the obligation that was placed upon man in this covenant? Just one one simple thing. One simple prohibition. You can eat of all the trees, Adam, except for this one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of that, you will surely die. And though God was not required to give man anything in response for his obedience, God set forth before man life. The promise of life signified in the tree of life if he would obey. And so this is where we are. This is where we find ourselves as we come to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve are perfectly depending upon God. They are perfectly submitting to God. They are perfectly delighting in God. They are humble. And their life in the garden is pervaded with the goodness and loving kindness of their Creator. But all of this abruptly comes to a halt in our text this morning. One of the definitions that we've given of humility in the past week is that it is an all-controlling sense, an all-controlling apprehension of our own creatureliness and corruption and the profound lowliness that that draws forth. In the last three sermons, we've looked at what it means to have an all-controlling sense of our own creatureliness. And now as we come to Genesis 3, this passage really serves as a bridge of sorts. A bridge that connects this all-controlling sense of our creatureliness with an all-controlling sense of our corruption. Prior to the events in our text, there was no corruption in man. Humility was entirely within the realm of his creatureliness. But in this account, we learn how man became corrupt by rejecting his creatureliness. That's what's going on in the passage before us. He became corrupt by renouncing this all-controlling sense of his own creatureliness. The title of my message this morning is The Death of Humility. Here we find the serpent's dagger plunged into the downward disposition of man's soul. Here our first parents cast off this all-controlling sense of their own creatureliness. Here we're given the first portrait of pride. And it's not a pretty one. But it's one that we must look at and look at carefully. Because to remain ignorant of pride is to remain in bondage to it. We must stare our pride in the face through the mirror of God's 
word. And when we do, there are a number of realities that confront us, specifically in this text. The first is this, that our pride distorts God's revelation. Distorts God's revelation. We're not told how much time here has passed since man's creation, but uh, the text seems to indicate that not much time has passed at all. In fact, there are many who would argue that this account here happened on the seventh day of creation, the seventh day of the first week of history, the Sabbath day. Regardless, we are introduced to a crafty serpent lurking in the garden. This is no ordinary serpent. We're told in Revelation 12, verse 9, that this ancient serpent is Satan or the devil. And God tells us in Ezekiel 28 more about Satan. He tells us that Satan was a guardian angel who was created perfect. He was created upright in Eden. But he fell. And how did he fall? He fell through pride. Ezekiel 28, verse 17, the Lord speaking to Satan, Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Now this prideful, fallen angel approaches our first parents in the form of a serpent. And he comes to them with a question. The first question in all of history. This is it, right here. Verse 1. Did God actually say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This might give the appearance of honest inquiry. That that Satan's just curious. Just wanting to know what what it was exactly that, that God had said. But this is no honest inquiry. Satan in his pride is seeking to deceive Adam and Eve. In his pride, he is aiming to plant seeds of doubt into the minds and hearts of our first parents. The key word here in Satan's supposed quotation of God is any. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? According to the serpent, God's prohibition is all-encompassing and His provision is non-existent. Any and all of the trees are off-limits. He wants to make God appear overly restrictive. God has created this vast garden for man to enjoy. Many trees. He said, Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the trees in the garden except for one. But Satan's misrepresentation of God makes him appear stingy. As if he's a rich father who dresses his son in rags. James Montgomery Boyce comments, that Satan suggests that God is essentially prohibitive, that He is not good, that He does not wish the very best 
of all worlds for his creatures. Now Eve responds in verse 2 by denying this. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. So far, so good, right? But as she continues to explain, she actually subtly distorts God's word, showing that Satan's subtle temptation has actually taken root in her heart. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but listen to this, verse 3, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, being the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Satan's ears were certainly tickled when he heard those words, neither shall you touch it. What's happening here? Eve is adding to God's prohibition. God had not said that she could not touch the tree. She's adding to his word. And by so doing, she is evidencing that she is beginning to view God as heavy-handed and restrictive. The serpent perceiving this goes in for the kill. All subtlety is thrown to the wind. His discreetness, his indirect questioning and twisting of God's Word gives way to outright blatant denial of God's Word. Verse 4, You will not surely die. In other words, God is a liar. His warning is simply not true. It's an empty threat. And Satan asserts that it is an empty threat motivated by God's own self-serving ends. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here, what is happening is a prideful distortion of God's character and God's Word. God is proclaimed as an unloving, egotistical liar. And for that reason, His Word ought to be entirely rejected. Now, we've seen in previous weeks from the book of Proverbs that humility is always wed to what? To the fear of God, right? Our souls grow downward in humility only as they grow upward in the fear of God. And thus it should not surprise us when we come to our text to find that the very antithesis of humility, pride, is wed to a twisted, distorted view of God. It is altogether void of God-fearing reverence. When we stop perceiving God as He truly is, we lose the ability to perceive ourselves as we truly are. Eve, through the serpent's deceit, distorts God's revelation of Himself and His will. She embraces an idolatrous view of God And this leads her to reject His Word. 
Which brings us to our second point. And that is that our pride dismisses God's authority. Kids, what, what should Adam and Eve have done when Satan came with his lies? What, how should they have responded to this temptation? They should have stomped on his head by faith in God's Word. They should have wielded the sword of God's Word and slain him and his lies on the spot. God had called them to guard and keep the garden. To guard and keep it from enemies. To guard and keep it from lies. They were, they were priests that were to protect the garden. But instead of doing that, what do we find here? We find them weighing. Weighing the serpent's words. And what we need to see is that that in and of itself is arrogant of the highest sort. Pride did not appear. Listen. Pride did not appear when Adam and Eve came to embrace Satan's words as true. That's not when pride first came upon the scene. Pride first came upon the scene here when they opened their minds to the possibility that Satan's words were true. See the difference there? At that point, they were no longer living as creatures under the absolute, uncontested authority of their Creator. Here's the problem. By opening their minds to the possible truthfulness of Satan's words, they were putting Satan's words on the same level as God's words. So you've got God's word over here. Here's what God has said. Here's what Satan said. These are two opposing words. And guess what Eve did? Eve said, okay, I've got these two words. Now I am going to stand as judge over these words and decide which one is right and which one is wrong. No longer is God the sovereign judge. Eve is. And looking at the evidence, she decides whether or not she should believe and submit onto her Creator. In other words, there's an outright rejection of this all-controlling sense of her own creatureliness. The autonomous self has been enthroned as sovereign over God. And God's Word is just one of many options. The chief problem here in our text is not an outward act of rebellion. Yes, that is a problem as we will see. But there's first the problem of an internal disposition, a haughtiness of spirit, an exaltation of self, a rejection of the creator-creature relationship. This is how Cornelius Van Til puts it. He says that the essence of sin lies in this. You want to know what sin is? It is this. Men virtually assume or presuppose that they are non-created. Now that's not often how we think of sin. 
But I want to propose that that's what's going on in our text, and that's what's going on every time you and I willfully sin. We are presupposing, we are assuming that we are non-created, that we are not creatures. We sin because we refuse to live in willful dependence upon and subjection to our Creator. We deceive ourselves into believing that we are our own masters, that we are the lords of our own existence. Let me give you a couple of examples of this. The first from the culture. We live in a nation that has looked approvingly upon the slaughter of millions upon millions of unborn babies. And our nation has looked approvingly upon this because, we are told, a woman has a right to choose. She can do with her body as she pleases. It's her body. She's sovereign. That's what we're told. She's not accountable to an absolutely authoritative Creator. The Sixth Commandment may come into consideration at some point, but at the end of the day, the woman is Lord. And God's law, God's law is deemed by the sovereign self to be overly restrictive. Who's who's God to limit my right to absolute, unqualified freedom? No way! I'll do with my body as I please. A second example from the church. Pornography is a massive issue among professing Christians, even leaders in the church. Now, how does a Christian get to the point of clicking on a website that he knows he ought not to go to and viewing images that he knows will defile and destroy him. How does he get to that point? He knows the seventh commandment. He knows God's warning in Proverbs 6 that a man cannot hold a fire to his chest without being burned. He knows these things. But in the moment of temptation, here's what's going on. He is exalting himself over God and God's Word. This is what's happening inside. Yes, I know that God has said that the way of the adulterous woman leads to death. But, I actually think that there's life to be found here. Perhaps God is being overly restrictive. Perhaps He's a killjoy. Perhaps He's holding out on me. Perhaps He doesn't have the best of all worlds in mind for me. There's something here that God is restricting me from that would give me lasting joy and satisfaction. And even though God says that it won't, I believe it will. And so I'm going to give myself to it. Now, of course, in the moment, the Christian is not explicitly saying those things 
or even thinking those things. But I want to propose to you this morning that that is what is going on within. That is what the temptation is at its root. Will we submit to God and believe God? Or will we exalt the self as sovereign? Who's going to be king? Who's going to be supreme? Before anyone looks at pornography or murders a baby in the womb, they have first cast off their creatureliness. They have first deceived themselves into believing that they are sovereign. That they are not radically dependent upon and entirely obligated to their Creator. This is the root of all sin. Ungodding God and deifying the self. And friends, it is insanity. It makes absolutely no sense. It's madness. We see it in our text. It's shocking. Absolute insanity. The creature living as if he is the independent creator. That's what's going on here. It's pride. Given our definition of humility as a downward disposition of a Godward self-perception, we could say that pride is a, a haughty disposition. The haughty disposition of an idolatrous self-perception. Charles Bridges defines pride in this way. He says, it is contending for supremacy with God. Contending for supremacy with God. The question is, who is going to be supreme? Who's going to be supreme? And whenever you or I willfully sin, we are assuming in that moment that the self, the self is supreme. We are living as though we are non-created. You see that? It's so vital for us to grasp, to see that, that pride, this rejection of our creatureliness, this rejection of God as our sovereign, authoritative Creator. Pride is the root of every sin. Every violation of the Ten Commandments. Any sin you could possibly fathom, at the root of it, if you get down to the bedrock, there you will find this. Contending for supremacy with the living God. Look at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Here we see it. Eve is the judge. God has said, you eat of the tree, you will die. Satan has said, you eat of the tree, you won't die. And Eve decides, you know, I'm going to look at the fruit. I'm going to look at this tree and decide for myself who's right. Maybe it's God. Maybe it's the serpent. How can I know until I examine the evidence for myself? And so she does. 
And this inevitably leads to outward treason. Your hardest boss explains what's going on here in every faculty of the soul as man and woman take of the fruit and eat. He says, first, the manifestation of this fall is in the consciousness. There man recognizes himself as no longer living from God and for God. Second, the manifestation of this fall is in the alignment of the will of man. He no longer makes himself subject to God, but seeks to be like God, above all, not less than God. Third, the manifestation is in the emotional life of man, that he looks with lust and desire at the fruit that was forbidden by God, shows how his emotion, too, functions in a wrong way. Listen to this. That it is no longer an enjoying of things in God, but a godless losing of himself in things outside of God. In his mind, his will, his affections, man has cast off the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. He has rejected his Creator, and thereby he has rejected his createdness. And once that prideful rejection occurs, it is inevitable that he will take of the fruit and eat. The rejection of creatureliness has led to corruption. And this arrogant corruption has devastating ramifications for man's relationship with God. That brings us to our third and final point. Our pride disdains God's presence. We saw a number of weeks ago that as image of God, Adam and Eve knew perfect fellowship with God. They lived in loving devotion and communion with their God, their Creator. But suddenly all of that changes. Their prideful rebellion brings shame. Shame is the fear of being exposed. It causes us like, like a turtle crawling into its shell. It causes us to want to hide. It causes us to want to cover up the ugly things about us so that other people don't see. And that is precisely what Adam and Eve do here. They seek to make a covering for themselves out of fig leaves. Verse 7. And then we find them upon hearing the sound of their Creator who's coming in judgment, they seek to hide themselves among the trees. They don't want to come into the convicting presence of their Sovereign. They don't want their autonomous rebellion to be exposed. They hope that they can cover it up. They hope that they can go on with their merry lives as before. And when they with their sin are brought into the light of God's holy presence, they resort to blame shifting. Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Nobody wants to take responsibility for their sin. And ultimately, in blaming each other, they are blaming God. We see this in Adam's words. Verse 12, 
The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruits of the tree and I ate. To put it more bluntly, this is actually your fault, God. You're the one who gave me this woman who deceived me into eating the tree. This is actually your fault, God. You're the one who created this angelic being who fell and deceived me. It's not my fault. I'm not responsible for this. The arrogance is astounding. And yet it's woefully familiar. It's woefully familiar. We do this all the time. If only I was married. If only I didn't live in the internet age. If only our culture wasn't constantly bombarding me with sexually explicit material. If only my wife was more interested in sexual intimacy. If only I wasn't under so much stress from work. If only I didn't have such a bad childhood. Then, then I wouldn't be addicted to pornography. If only, if only, if only. And what's, what's happening there is we're saying, look, the, the, the problem isn't, isn't really me. The problem is my circumstances and, and my relationships. And therefore, ultimately, the problem is God. Because God is the one who's providentially ordered all of this. The woman whom you gave me. That's the problem. No, it's not. Friend, wake up to reality. Turn from your arrogant blame shifting. Turn from your arrogant attempts to cover up your sin. You cannot do it. Your Creator knows all. He sees all. There is no hiding from Him. Come out from behind the fig leaves. Come out from behind the trees. Come out from behind your blame shifting and self-justification. Meet your Maker, and own your arrogance. Own it for what it is. You have contended for supremacy with your Sovereign. As a creature, humble yourself before God this morning. As a sinner, own the fact that you are radically corrupt. All of us in Adam have embraced the serpent's deceit. We have all exalted the self as sovereign. We have rejected our creatureliness. There's only one, only one who has walked humbly with his God and, and he alone is our hope. Jesus Christ, just like Adam here, was tempted by Satan. Forty days and forty nights tempted. Not in a nice garden, but in the wilderness. He was tempted by the devil. Satan came twisting God's Word, twisting God's character in an attempt to induce a haughty spirit in our Savior. And how did Christ respond? 
He didn't respond by taking Satan's word and considering it, putting it on the same level as God's and saying, you know, Satan, I'll, I'll hear you out and, and I'll think about that for a little bit. Let, let me just have a little time to, to process these things. Oh, he didn't exalt the self, the human self as sovereign for one single moment. As the incarnate Son of God, He possessed the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception and thus in the very moment of temptation, He did not heed the serpent's words for a second. Instead, He wielded God's Word in faith and in submission as a creature, a creature of the dust accountable to His Creator. When Satan came with his lies, he responded, It is written. It is written. It is written. Hear the Word of God, Satan. He continued in perfect submission and dependence upon his Father, not daring to exalt the human self. He obeyed in humility. And He did so for our salvation. That's what's happening there. What's happening in the wilderness. Jesus is undoing what you and I in Adam have done. He's obeying where we've disobeyed. He's exercising perfect humility where we have exercised atrocious pride. The question this morning is, will you humbly admit your need of Him? Will you admit your need of Jesus? Will you embrace your corruption and stop pretending like it's not true? Will you say, God, all of my life, all of my life, I have contended for supremacy with You. All of my life I have fought against You. I've rebelled against You. But today I lay down my weapons. Today I renounce this wicked, haughty spirit and I humble myself before You. I cast myself upon Jesus. You say that this morning. Only in Christ that the black gloom set before us in this text can be overcome. Please don't be so proud to think that you don't need Him. You need His blood and righteousness more than the air you breathe. You do. Shut your ears to Satan's lie. And come to Jesus. Amen. Lord, we thank You that You do not leave us in our sin. Lord, that You delight to expose our sin. To bring it into the life that it might be killed 
that it might be deadened, that it might be eradicated from within. Oh God, as we come to this text, it is a mirror that exposes us. It exposes the deep recesses of our foolishness, the deep recesses of our corruption. And God, we pray that You would do what only You can do, that You would give us an all-controlling sense of it. Help us to see it, God. Help us to see our sin for what it is. Help us to see our pride for what it is. God, peel back the layers of our hearts and cause us today, cause us right now to see it. Cause us to mourn over it. Work within us a godly sorrow. A true repentance that is not repented of. That we might have a true humility, God. Oh, we want that. We want that whatever the cost. We want the downward disposition of a Godward self-perception. We know that the road to that is not an easy one, not a comfortable one, not a nice one. There's not a bed of roses awaiting those who would grow in humility. God, we say this morning for Your glory and for our good and for the sake of the name of Christ and for the sake of the nations, we say we want humility, whatever it takes, whatever You have to expose within, however deep Your Word has to pierce, whatever corruption we are forced to set before our eyes, whatever agony might result, we want humility. We want to fear You, God. We want hearts that have an all-controlling sense of Your majesty and holiness. We want to we see You, Lord, in Your beauty. We want to be undone by Your presence. We want to see You Lord, as Isaiah saw You, the thrice Holy One, holy, 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 the One whom angels can't even look upon because You're so pure, so blindingly brilliant. We want to see You. Please, God. Show us Your glory. Open our eyes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.